Section 33 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Vizitelli. Fifth part of Chapter 7. But Virginie revived the joking with my little drop of brandy. She imitated a camp follower with one hand on her hip, the elbow arched to indicate the little barrel, and with the other hand she poured out the brandy into space by turning her fist round. She did it so well that the party then begged Mother Coupeau to sing the mouse. The old woman refused, vowing that she did not know that naughty song. Yet she started off with the remnants of her broken voice, and her wrinkled face with its lively little eyes underlined the illusions, the terrors of Mademoiselle Lys drawing her skirts around her at the sight of a mouse. All the table laughed. The women could not keep their countenance, and continued casting bright glances at their neighbors. It was not indecent, after all. There were no coarse words in it. All during the song, Bosch was playing mouse up and down the legs of the lady coal-dealer. Things might have gotten a bit out of line if Gouget, in response to a glance from Gervaise, had not brought back the respectful silence with The Farewell of Abdul Kader, which he sang out loudly in his bass voice. The song rang out from his golden beard as if from a brass trumpet. All the hearts skipped a beat when he cried, Ah, my noble comrade! referring to the warrior's black mare. They burst into applause even before the end. "'Now, Père Bru, it's your turn,' said Mother Coupeau. "'Sing your song. The old ones are the best any day.' And everybody turned towards the old man, pressing him and encouraging him. He, in a state of torpor, with his immovable mask of tanned skin, looked at them without appearing to understand. They asked him if he knew the five vowels, he held down his head. He could not recollect it. All the songs of the good old days were mixed up in his head. As they made up their minds to leave him alone, he seemed to remember, and began to stutter in a cavernous voice. Trou-la-la, trou-la-la, trou-la, trou-la, trou-la-la. His face assumed an animated expression. This chorus seemed to awake some far-off gaieties within him, enjoyed by himself alone, as he listened with a childish delight to his voice, which became more and more hollow. "'Say there, my dear,' Virginie came and whispered in Gervaise's ear. "'I've just been there again, you know. It worried me. Well, Lantier has disappeared from Francoise.' "'You didn't meet him outside?' asked the laundress. "'No, I walked quickly, not as if I was looking for him.' But Virginie raised her eyes, interrupted herself, and heaved a smothered sigh. "'Ah, oh, mon Dieu! He's there on the pavement opposite. He, he's looking this way!' Gervaise, quite beside herself, ventured to glance in the direction indicated. Some persons had collected in the street to hear the party sing, and Lantier was indeed there in the front row, listening and coolly looking on. It was rare cheek, everything considered, Gervaise felt a chill ascend from her legs to her heart, and she no longer dared to move, whilst old Brew continued, Trou-la-la, trou-la-la, trou-la, trou-la, trou-la-la. 
Very good. Thank you, my ancient one. That's enough, said Coupeau. Uh, do you know the whole of it? You shall sing it for us another day when we need something sad. This raised a few laughs. The old fellow stopped short, glanced round the table with his pale eyes, and resumed his look of a meditative animal. Coupeau called for more wine as the coffee was finished. Clemence was eating strawberries again. With a pause in singing, they began to talk about a woman who had been found hanging that morning in the building next door. It was Madame Lerat's turn, but she required to prepare herself. She dipped the corner of her napkin into a glass of water and applied it to her temples because she was too hot. Then she asked for a thimble full of brandy, drank it, and slowly wiped her lips. "'The child of God shall it be,' she murmured, "'the child of God.' And, tall and masculine, looking with her bony nose and her shoulders as square as a grenadier's, she began, "'The lost child left by its mother alone is sure of a home in heaven above. God sees and protects it on earth from his throne. The child that is lost is the child of God's love.' Her voice trembled at certain words and dwelt on them in liquid notes. She looked out of the corner of her eyes to heaven, whilst her right hand swung before her chest or pressed against her heart with an impressive gesture. Then Gervaise, tortured by Lantier's presence, could not restrain her tears. It seemed to her that the song was relating her own suffering, that she was the lost child, abandoned by its mother and whom God was going to take under his protection. Clemence was now very drunk, and she burst into loud sobbing, and placed her head down onto the table in an effort to smother her gasps. There was a hush vibrant with emotion. The ladies had pulled out their handkerchiefs, and were drying their eyes with their heads erect from pride. The men had bowed their heads, and were staring straight before them, blinking back their tears. Poisson bit off the end of his pipe twice while gulping and gasping, Bosch, with two large tears trickling down his face, wasn't even bothering to squeeze the coal dealer's knee any longer. All these drunk revellers were as soft-hearted as lambs. Wasn't the wine almost coming out of their eyes? When the refrain began again, they all let themselves go, blubbering into their plates. But Gervaise and Virginie could not, in spite of themselves, take their eyes off the pavement opposite. Madame Bosch, in her turn, caught sight of Lantier, and uttered a faint cry, without ceasing to besmear her face with her tears. Then all three had very anxious faces, as they exchanged involuntary signs. "'Mon Dieu, if Coupeau were to turn around, if Coupeau caught sight of the other, oh, what a butchery, what a carnage!' And they went on to such an extent that the zinc-worker asked them, "'Whatever are you looking at?' He leant forward and recognized Lantier. "'Damnation! It's too much!' muttered he. "'Ah, the dirty scoundrel! Ah, the dirty scoundrel! No, it's too much! It must come to an end!' And he rose from his seat, muttering most atrocious threats. Gervaise, in a low voice, implored him to keep quiet. "'Listen to me. I, I implore you. Leave the knife alone. Remain where you are. Don't do anything dreadful.' Virginie had to take the knife which he had picked up off the table from him, but she could not prevent him leaving the shop and going up to Lantier. Those around the table saw nothing of this, so involved were they in weeping over the song as Madame Lerat sang the last verse. It sounded like a moaning wail of the wind, and Madame Poutois was so moved that she spilled her wine over the table. 
Gervaise remained frozen with fright, one hand tight against her lips to stifle her sobs. She expected at any moment to see one of the two men fall unconscious in the street. As Coupeau rushed towards Lantier, he was so astonished by the fresh air that he staggered, and Lantier, with his hands in his pockets, merely took a step to the side. Now the two men were almost shouting at each other, Coupeau calling the other a lousy pig and threatening to make sausage of his guts. They were shouting loudly and angrily and waving their arms violently. Gervaise felt faint, and as it continued for a while she closed her eyes. Suddenly she didn't hear any shouting and opened her eyes. The two men were chatting amiably together. Madame Lerat's voice rose higher and higher, warbling another verse. Gervaise exchanged a glance with Madame Bosch and Virginie. Was it going to end amicably, then? Coupeau and Lantier continued to converse on the edge of the pavement. They were still abusing each other, but in a friendly way. As people were staring at them, they ended by strolling leisurely side by side past the houses, turning round again every ten yards or so. A very animated conversation was now taking place. Suddenly, Coupeau appeared to become angry again, whilst the other was refusing something and required to be pressed. And it was the zinc worker who pushed Lantier along, and who forced him to cross the street and enter the shop. "'I tell you, you're quite welcome,' shouted he. "'You'll take a glass of wine. Men are men, you know, we ought to understand each other.' Madame Lerard was finishing the last chorus. The ladies were singing all together as they twisted their handkerchiefs. The child that is lost is the child of God's love. The singer was greatly complimented, and she resumed her seat, affecting to be quite broken down. She asked for something to drink, because she always put too much feeling into that song, and she was constantly afraid of straining her vocal cords. Everyone at the table now had their eyes fixed on Lantier, who, quietly seated beside Coupeau, was devouring the last piece of Savoy cake, which he dipped in his glass of wine. With the exception of Virginie and Madame Bosch, none of the guests knew him. The Lorilleurs certainly scented some underhand business, but not knowing what, they merely assumed their most conceited air. Gouget, who had noticed Gervaise's emotion, gave the newcomer a sour look. As an awkward pause ensued, Coupeau simply said, "'A friend of mine,' and turning to his wife added, "'Come, stir yourself. Perhaps there's still some hot coffee left.' Gervaise, feeling meek and stupid, looked at them one after the other. At first, when her husband pushed her old lover into the shop, she buried her head between her hands, the same as she instinctively did on stormy days at each clap of thunder. She could not believe it possible. The walls would fall in and crush them all. Then, when she saw the two sitting together peacefully, she suddenly accepted it as quite natural. A happy feeling of languor benumbed her retaining her all in a heap at the edge of the table, with the sole desire of not being bothered. Mon Dieu! What is the use of putting oneself out when others do not, and when things arrange themselves to the satisfaction of everybody? She got up to see if there was any coffee left. In the back room the children had fallen asleep. That squint-eyed Augustine had tyrannized over them all during the dessert, pilfering their strawberries and frightening them with the most abominable threats. Now she felt very ill, and was bent double upon a stool, not uttering a word, her face ghastly pale. 
Fat Pauline had let her head fall against Etienne's shoulder, and he himself was sleeping on the edge of the table. Nana was seated with Victor on the rug beside the bedstead. She had passed her arm round his neck and was drawing him towards her, and, succumbing to drowsiness and with her eyes shut, she kept repeating in a feeble voice, "'Oh, Mama, I'm not well. Oh, Mama, I'm not well.' No wonder, murmured Augustine, whose head was rolling about on her shoulders. They're drunk. They've been singing like grown-up persons. Gervaise received another blow on beholding Etienne. She felt as though she would choke when she thought of the youngster's father being there in the other room eating cake, and that he had not even expressed a desire to kiss the little fellow. She was on the point of rousing Etienne and of carrying him there in her arms, then she felt again that the quiet way in which matters had been arranged was the best. It would not have been proper to have disturbed the harmony of the end of the dinner. She returned with the coffee-pot and poured out a glass of coffee for Lantier, who, by the way, did not appear to take any notice of her. "'Now it's my turn,' stuttered Coupeau in a thick voice. "'You've been keeping the best for the last? Well, I'll sing that piggish child.' "'Yes, yes, that piggish child!' cried everyone. The uproar was beginning again. Lantier was forgotten. The ladies prepared their glasses and their knives for accompanying the chorus. They laughed beforehand as they looked at the zinc-worker who steadied himself on his legs as he put on his most vulgar air, mimicking the hoarse voice of an old woman he sang. "'When out of bed each morn I hop, I'm always precious queer, I send him for a little drop.' to the drinking ken that's near. A good half-hour or more he'll stay, and that makes me so riled. He swigs it half upon his way. Oh, what a piggish child! And the ladies, striking their glasses, repeated in a chorus in the midst of a formidable gaiety. What a piggish child! What a piggish child! Even the Rue de la Goudore itself joined in now. The whole neighbourhood was singing, What a piggish child! The little clockmaker, the grocery clerks, the tripe women and the fruit women all knew the song and joined in the chorus. The entire street seemed to be getting drunk on the odours from the coupeau party. In the reddish haze from the two lamps, the noise of the party was enough to shut out the rumbling of the last vehicles in the street. Two policemen rushed over, thinking there was a riot, but on recognising Poisson they saluted him smartly and went away between the darkened buildings. Coupeau was now singing this verse. On Sundays at Petite Villette, whene'er the weather's fine, we call on Uncle Old Tinette, who's in the dustman line, to feast upon some cherry stones, the young'un's almost wild, and rolls amongst the dust and bones. What a piggish child! What a piggish child! Then the house almost collapsed. Such a yell ascended in the calm, warm night air that the shouters applauded themselves, for it was useless their hoping to be able to bawl any louder. Not one of the party could ever recollect exactly how the carouse terminated. It must have been very late. It's quite certain, for not a cat was to be seen in the street. Possibly, too, they had all joined hands and danced round the table— but all was submerged in a yellow mist, in which red faces were jumping about with mouths slipped from ear to ear. They had probably treated themselves to something stronger than wine toward the end, and there was a vague suspicion that someone had played them the trick of putting salt into the glasses. 
The children must have undressed and put themselves to bed. On the morrow, Madame Bosch boasted of having treated Bosch to a couple of clouts in a corner, where he was conversing a great deal too close to the charcoal dealer. But Bosch, who recollected nothing, said she must have dreamt it. Everyone agreed that it wasn't very decent the way Clemence had carried on. She had ended by showing everything she had, and then being so sick that she had completely ruined one of the muslin curtains. The men had at least the decency to go into the street. Lorilleur and Poisson, feeling their stomachs upset, had stumblingly glided as far as the pork-butcher's shop. It is easy to see when a person has been well brought up. For instance, the ladies, Madame Poutois, Madame Lerat, and Virginie, indisposed by the heat, had simply gone into the back room and taken their stays off. Virginie had even desired to lie on the bed for a minute, just to obviate any unpleasant effects. Thus the party had seemed to melt away, some disappearing behind the others, all accompanying one another, and being lost sight of in the surrounding darkness, to the accompaniment of a final uproar, a furious quarrel between the Lorilleur and an obstinate and mournful Trulala, Trulala of old bruise. Gervaise had an idea that Gouget had burst out sobbing when bidding her good-bye. Coupeau was still singing, as for Langier, he must have remained till the end. At one moment, even, she could still feel a breath against her hair, but she was unable to say whether it came from Lantier or if it was the warm night air. Since Madame Lerat didn't want to return to Les Batignolles at such a late hour, they took one of the mattresses off the bed and spread it for her in the corner of the shop after pushing back the table. She slept right there amid all the dinner crumbs. All night long, while the coupeau was sleeping, a neighbor's cat took advantage of an open window and was crunching the bones of the goose with its sharp teeth, giving the bird its final resting place. End of chapter 7 Recording by David Lazarus